Jesus, when he came in the form that many Jews were expecting, a second divine figure incarnate in a human, right, to call back to Heiser, right, because he's talking about a two, like, Yahwehs. two Yahwehs, right? <clears throat> the question was not, is a divine Messiah coming, but only is the carpenter from Nazareth the one, capital O, we are expecting? Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. This week, Daniel and I finished our discussion about Chapter 3 of the Divine Conspiracy, What Jesus Knew, Our God-Bathed World. We continue to talk about the ways in which God appears to us in ways that are very physical. We continue to talk about the fact that these ways are not new to the New Testament. They're actually found in the Old Testament. That the ideas of the Messiah, of the God who would come in a body, is a Jewish expectation. So if that sounds interesting to you, stay tuned. So over the last week, I read um, this book, The Jewish Gospels by Daniel Poyari. He, I believe, is a uh, Jewish scholar. Uh, Yeah, professor of Talmudic culture and rhetoric at the University of Carolina, Berkeley. And, um, but he has done uh, a lot of work with like Jewish and Christian um, texts together and thinking about these communities as in relationship with each other. I've referenced him several times already. Um, one of his more controversial takes in this book, and I guess it's the, the thesis of the book, really, is that the, the Gospels are Jewish and that the theology and the Christology, so the theology about Christ, Christ's divinity, and Christ's, um, and the theology of the Trinity are Jewish, actually in origin and nature. So I'm gonna read from the foreword. The foreword actually quotes chapter three, but it's just easy to access here. Um, He says, most if not all of the ideas and practices of the Jesus movement of the first century in the beginning of the second century, and even later, can be safely understood as part of the ideas and practices that we understand as Judaism. The ideas, and he puts that in quotes, the ideas of the Trinity and the incarnation, or certainly the the germs of those ideas, were already present among Jewish believers well before Jesus came onto the scene to incarnate himself, as it were, those theological notions incarnate into himself, as it were, those theological notions, and take up his messianic call. So his argument really is the ideas, the idea of the Trinity and the incarnation were Jewish ideas originally. And they only later broke away as a fence got put up between the 
Gentile and Jew Christian versus the Jewish Jew, right? <clears throat> so from the first page in the introduction, he reads, or he says, um, Jesus, when he came in the form that many Jews were expecting, a second divine figure incarnate in a human, right, to call back to Heiser, right, because he's talking about a two, like, Yahwehs. two Yahwehs, right? <clears throat> the question was not, is a divine Messiah coming, but only, is the carpenter from Nazareth the one, capital O, we are expecting? So the question isn't, is the divine Messiah coming? It's, is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, that divine Messiah? Not surprisingly, some Jews said yes, and some said no. Today we call the first group Christians and the second group Jews, but it was not like that then, not at all. <clears throat> so in his first chapter, um, which is titled From Son of God to Son of Man, he explores the dichotomy between Son of God and Son of Man, those terms as they get used in the Gospels. He says on page 29, um, the bottom line of this demonstration is that early on the term son of God was used to refer to the Davidic king without any hint of incarnation of the deity in the king. So he quotes Psalm 2, um, he quotes 2 Kings 25. Um, Which, if you go and read Psalm 2. Oh, it's full of nation talk. Yeah. God reclaiming yep. the nations. Yep. Um, but he quotes all up and down the Old Testament. First um, Samuel 16, 3, first Kings 1 34, first Kings 19, 6, um, Second Kings 11, 12, Second Kings 23, 30, um, using this kind of language to talk about the very human and acknowledged very human king of Israel or Judah. Um, so he says that the term son of God, when a Jew hears it, he doesn't think incarnate divinity. If okay. first century, second temple Jewish person heard son of God, they would think, oh, it's the Messiah. It's the potentially earthly king, right? The king that's come to um, restore political power to the Jewish state. Isn't that <clears throat> what his own disciples ask of him? Yeah, yeah. Aren't you going to, when are you going to restore Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. um, when Mark Who will sit at your right and your left in, the, in your kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then they're, they're thinking of these, these, um, these terms in, in this very much like this earthly Davidic kingdom sense, at least to a, to a degree. Although, Buenarin might suggest that maybe they were more keen on the ideas that he develops 
later in the book that I'll get into in a second. But anyway, when Mark in the very beginning of his gospel writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, the son of God means the human Messiah, using the old title of the king of the house of David. When on the other hand, Mark refers to him in the second chapter of the gospel as the son of man, he is pointing to the divine nature of Christ. This seems like a paradox. The name God being used for Jesus' human nature and the name man being used for his divine nature. Well, the key to this is Daniel 7. Because when we hear son of man in Daniel 7, it is referred, it's referring to a divine figure who Heiser has, a whole, Heiser has a whole chapter. It's called the cloud rider, dude. Yeah. Ascends <laughs> on a cloud yeah. to the right hand of God. Yeah. Yahweh and when, himself. And, and when Jesus is before um, oh, what's his Caiaphas. Name? Caiaphas. High the priest. high priest in the temple. Yeah. Are you son of God? You will see one. Like the son of man. Like the son of man. Riding on a cloud. Uh, and he's quoting Daniel 7. 7. Yep. Yep. So Jesus answers very Jewish. Yep. Are you this? Uh, oh, I'm going to quote the scriptures to you. Yeah. And you better know what's around it. Yeah. Because that's what I mean. I am that. Yeah. I am the one that can take as, as Rob Bell said, you, who can take the scroll? Yeah. Seated, giving power and authority. Let's just, yeah. hey, let's, 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 uh, Let's let's go there. Daniel seven. I've read this before. We'll read it again. Nah, yeah, nah, please. Nah, nah, nah. Well, because this will make it crystal clear that son of man encapsulates. And there are arguments. Uh, Marty Solomon with Bama podcast makes a good argument that son of man can refer to a human being, too. Um, mm -hmm. If you take yeah. the usage that it's primarily in the, the, the prophets in Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. um, but in Daniel, and so the, the debate is always, is Jesus using the, the prophet's rendering, specifically Ezekiel's rendering of son of man, or is it the Daniel 7 son of man? And it appears as though sometimes Jesus may use one versus the other, but many times he's using the Daniel 7, like, I'm that guy. So son of God referring to his human nature and son of man referring to his divine nature seems very counterintuitive to us, but it's exactly what would have been expected in second temple Judaism in Jesus time, which is just mind blowing to a degree. Do you have it ready? Mm -hmm. um While you're doing that, I'm going to explain this next little bit that he talks about. So this is a part that could, if you look at it in the wrong way, I think it makes some devout Christians uncomfortable. Um, but Boynarin talks about um, Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh like the Canaanite gods El and Baal. Mm -hmm. So that would be El and Baal for those of us who well um, and pronounce it bail 
who is one of the main figures that Israel turns to? Baal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so again, why, 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 why would God not use something familiar yeah. to his people? All right. So I, I have these. Okay, Go, cool. If you want to finish I'll, I'll explaining. Get, no, no, no I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Do okay. this first. This is in Mark 14. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, into the courtyard. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Some stood and gave false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands and in three days build another one not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you going to answer? What is this testimony these men bring against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am. I am, Jesus said. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7, I'll start in 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and the wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon ten thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books books were opened (laughs) sounds like revelation anyway then i continued to watch because of their boastful words the horns were speaking sounds like revelation then i kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire the other beast had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time Who are the, anyway, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed so what is jesus saying when he's asked are you the messiah and jesus says and you will see the son of man sitting in the right hand of the mighty one coming upon the clouds of heaven now jesus is saying this knowing that caiaphas knows the rest of the passage because what happens well, he's given. What does is, what is Jesus say at the end? All authority in heaven and on earth. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's read. You mentioned this one just now. So much for not reading enough scripture. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, it's funny. I think we read scripture every time we sit down together. We just don't read it in every time we cut an episode. It's not in every single time block, but whatever. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord decrees. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me. And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up at any moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So that passage is typically interpreted as being about, um, is a, a psalm that's proclaimed over the ascension of a new king mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, <clears throat> and you can say, oh, but it's talking about son and da-da-da. And like, yes, it is. And the Gospels use it in very good, clever, unique, theologically informative, and I think valid ways. But talking originally, it was designed for that yep. purpose and that's how i think many jews understood it and i think in second temple period they probably also had this sense of like oh there's something else going on here which is what point R is getting at daniel 7 similarly actually has this dual interpretation in jewish tradition one saw this as this secondary divine figure and i'm about to get into how this relates to baal and el um, but the other saw it as corporate israel and Boinaran actually deals with this. He talks about how both of those interpretations are valid and both of those interpretations can simultaneously be true because even in Daniel 7, it refers to this um, one like a son of man as a plural and a singular in the passage. And so it's, it's interesting because it seems to switch back and forth. And so he's like, that's not a big deal because a contention, like a... Um, a contentious point in Second Temple Judaism was this interpretation. Is this one, like a son of man figure, the divine Messiah coming? Because this, this son of God and son of man image get fused into the same person in certain ideologies. And in others, they remain separate. And the Christian tradition is the offshoot of Judaism that or this second temple Judaism that picks up this, this fusion and the Judaism that becomes rabbinic Judaism later rejects it partially because of the polemic that exists between them. So I'm going to read this section about um, 
Baal and El and God, and maybe we should say the commander of Yahweh's armies might be appropriate here. Let me go back to Joshua. They are among the earliest ideas, these ideas about a second divine figure, are among the earliest ideas about God in the religion of the Israelites, comparable to the ancient relationship between God, the gods El and Baal, in which Baal comes near in his shining storm cloud. Baal traditionally rode a cloud that was his vehicle. Yeah, yep. Yep. Oh yep. L it's is the just... <laughs> dude. All right. All right. L is the transcendent one, the ancient of days. L <laughs> is the ancient sky god of all the Canaanites. His name comes to just mean God in biblical Hebrew. So L Elohim, that just means generic God, but yeah. that's because L in the Canaanite mind was such a big figure he was like the god right that he um his name just became synonymous with god mm -hmm. the, the term god big or small g um, and he was the god of justice while the younger associate named baal by most of the canaanites but not the israelites who called him yahweh was the god of war the commander of the armies of the Lord, maybe we could say. In the biblical religion, in order to form a more perfect monotheism, these two divinities have been merged into one, but not quite seamlessly. The Israelites were a part of that ancient Canaanite community, differentiated to some extent by the different ideas about God that they developed through their historical experience, or as a believing Christian, you could say through the revelation of God and his relationship to his people, right? I don't think that viewing the similarities between Baal and El and Yahweh and the, the ancient of days and the divine one like a son of man should worry us in our faith at all because we see the way that things in other religious or philosophical spaces reflect truth of our own um, of our own tradition it, it shouldn't worry us at all um i might find it i might not but i'll link below any either way um lewis's essay is theology poetry Oh, it's great. Where his his basic argument is any good Christian is going to respect paganism. Yeah. <clears throat> and one could say that, um, see, he sees this, and a lot of biblical scholars see this as well, these two different traditions developed alongside each other against each other. And I think it you could very easily say that these two traditions develop together and the Israelite tradition in part polemicizing against the Canaanite tradition doesn't necessarily just adopt these ideas but that they somehow reflect truths about God um, and there's a very clear line of like okay we are not that so the Bible is not saying this this whole Canaanite stuff is legit 
Um, <clears throat> but to Lewis's point, you got to respect it. The Israelites were a part of an ancient Canaanite community differentiated to some extent by different ideas about God that they developed through a historical existence, but the ideas of the duality within God was not easily escaped. However, much certain leaders sought to enforce it. So there's this idea inherent in ancient, ancient Israelite religious practice and ancient Canaanite religious practice of God having these two aspects to himself. A God that is very far away generates almost inevitably a need for a God who is closer. A God who judges us requires almost inevitably a God who will fight for us and defend us. As long as the second God is completely subordinate to the first, the principle of monotheism is not violated. So this one like read, read read that again. As long no sorry the the like two or three sentences before that as well. Okay, a god that is very far away generates almost inevitably a need for a god who is closer. Mm. A god who judges us requires almost inevitably a god who will fight for us and defend us. As long as a second god is complete. The second God is completely subordinate to the first. Mm. The principle mm. of monotheism is not violated. Mm. Okay. So all he's saying is these two aspects of God that we see represented in the Old Testament, this Yahweh transcendent and this Yahweh more present to us, can be seen behaving in similar ways to the Canaanite idea. So it's the same as Pharaoh and the temple and the tabernacle with Israel and Yahweh, right? It's the same kind of mapping on the angel leading the armies i my name is in him yes he has the power to pardon sins all of that stuff all of that stuff he is yahweh's intermediary we could say between yahweh and yahweh's people which is exactly what we profess about jesus like exactly um so skipping forward a little bit once Yahweh absorbs El, so he's talking more sociologically here, on this, this idea that, so the Israelite religion became so popular that the Canaanite gods kind of like died away, but the name El stuck and it became associated with Yahweh, uh, which is why we see in the Bible the name Yahweh and the name El being used almost interchangeably. The younger god has no name of his own, but presumably is identified at different times with the archangels or other versions of the great angel Michael, as well as with Enoch, Christ, and later Metatron as well. And that's a later, I think, Christian heresy. Um, Sounds like a transformer. Yeah. Some of the ancient guises of the younger God found in Jewish texts of the Second Temple period, and later, especially the, um, especially the little Yahu or Yahoel, and indicate this extra biblical identity of Yahweh. So there was this idea that there is this duality to God that exists, the transcendent and the not so transcendent. Um, and this actually gets represented to us in extra biblical second temple literature like the book of Enoch and the um, the book of fourth Ezra 
his entire second chapter is actually on the book of first Enoch and the book of fourth Ezra. Um, he spends most of his time on Enoch, um, but the way in which a divine human figure that is actually Enoch is portrayed in the book of Enoch, um, in the book of first Enoch. This is part of the reason it's not canon, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this divine human figure there that's portrayed as Enoch. And so this is definitely something that is in the era of Judaism in the Second Temple period. This merging mm -hmm. of um, the Son of Man, Son of God ideas that he talked about in chapter one with this divine figure, Son of Man, this human figure, Son of God, Messiah, deliverer of the people. Well, being, yeah. It's, it's present, it's in the water before Jesus is on the scene. Mm -hmm. So Jesus isn't doing anything new, even in claiming divinity and incarnation and triune theology. None of that is new. It's, it's not new at all. It's um, just that, well, I mean... He also wasn't the first, obviously. So this is why everyone's so confused. Is this mm -hmm. not Mary's son? Yeah. The carpenter? Yeah. What what good? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah. Why would he be from there? Yeah, exactly. Um, so in his chapter on first Enoch and fourth Ezra, he says, uh, this way of looking at things, this um the fact that the theology of the incarnation and the Trinity could very well and did exist in some forms in Second Temple Judaism before Jesus came on the scene. That idea, this way of looking at things is quite opposite or recognizing its existence is quite opposite to a scholarly tradition that assumes that Jesus came first and that Christology was created after the fact in order to explain his amazing career. Mm. So there's a branch of biblical studies that claims that all of Jesus' wild claims were later invented by his disciples because there's no yes. way that a second temple Jewish person would have claimed these things and that any Jewish person would have believed them unless it was necessary to promote some kind of power play by the disciples or whatever, whatever, right? That's secret council in the yeah. shadows. Which is what we've spent some time previously this past summer yeah. talking about um, with the canon. Um, okay, so continuing, the job description required, one Christ will be divine, will be the son of man, will be sovereign and savior of the Jewish, of the Jews and the world, was already, was there already, and Jesus fit or did not, according to other Jews, the bill. The job description was not a put-up job tailored to fit Jesus. Yeah. So this whole idea isn't a new idea at all, um, that the um, a divine and human Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man figure would come and in some way deliver God's people. Um, or even, as we'll see in a second, suffer potentially die, reunite Jew and Gentile together, all of this sort of stuff. Um, so he says, the great innovation of the Gospels is only this. 
to declare that the Son of Man is here already, that he walked, that he walks among us, as opposed to Enoch, who will be in those last days, the Messiah, Son of Man. Jesus already is. Mm. As opposed to the Son of Man flying on the clouds, who is a vision of the future, Jesus has come, declares the Gospels, and the believers. The last days are right now, proclaims the Gospels. All of the ideas about Christ are old. The new is Jesus. There is nothing in the doctrine of the Christ that is new, save the declaration of this man as the Son of God. This is, of course, an enormous declaration, a huge innovation in itself, and one that has had fateful historical consequences. That's how he closes that chapter. He has a chapter um, on... Sounds, Sounds like news. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why I think news is so appropriate. And that's why I think this fits in our gospel series and us seeing the incarnation as a part of the Jewish tradition in Jesus' time and before Jesus' time, not a necessarily new innovation, I think is important in the conversation we've been having about God's presence being here with us because it's this that allows all of that, you could call it foreshadowing, you could call it prefiguration, um, if you want to use a Richard Hayes term, um, all of that done in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, about trying to bring us into God's presence is culminated in God's presence coming to us in the form of an incarnate son that's totally congruent with Jewish ideas on the ground at the time. Totally congruent. Um, So I'll read um, this. He he has the third chapter I'll probably cover in another episode when we talk about um, types of purity. But um, skipping ahead to his, I think this is his final chapter. Um, that the Messiah would suffer and be humiliated was something Jews learned from a close reading of the biblical texts. So even the idea that he would suffer and die wasn't new. A close reading is in precisely the style of the classically rabbinic interpretations that have become known as midrash. Mm. The concordance of verses and passages from different places in scripture to derive a new narrative image and theological idea. So he's saying that it's totally congruent with within the framework of first century Judaism to even see the suffering and death of Jesus in this tradition. Skipping ahead. As we see, neither Judaism nor Jews have ever spoken with one voice on this hermeneutical theological question. And therefore, there is no sense in which the assertion of many sufferings and rejections and contempt for the Son of Man constitutes a break with Judaism or the religion of Israel. Skipping down. There is no essentially Christian drawn from the cross versus Jewish triumphalist notion of the Messiah, but only one complex and contrasted messianic idea shared by Mark, the gospel writer, and Jesus, 
with the full community of the Jews. So what he's saying there is this idea isn't Christian and not Jewish. It's something that is totally located within that context and is totally reasonable to be located in that context. This will come back when we read how God became king. Yeah, yeah. So laying groundwork now without even knowing it, I guess. <clears throat> and again, all of that just to say, it's, it's taking the idea of God's presence, God dwelling with us, this being God's space, and it's making it tangible mm -hmm. to us. 